Hello, and welcome to another episode of Goblin Lore. This episode is our finale of the two-part series on books in magic with Morgan Wentworth and Bibliovore Orc. Last time, we ended the discussion about halfway through when we were talking about Commodore Guff and his ability to manipulate the fabric of the multiverse through writing, through his books. We were just about to get into this discussion about what it means to have a kind of magic that uses text, that uses literature as a way of creating life and illusion and artistry. So, without any further ado, let's get to the show. magic can be found in Dominaria with the sagas. Each saga tells a story about something that happened in Dominaria, for example, the Mending or the Fall of the Thran. And so those are not necessarily planeswalkers that specialize in it, but a way that magic is used to tell a story. Yeah, yeah. and that was that was a cool thing to see, too, because you get that, that flavor of, you know, your counter or your... Lore counters. Was it lore counters? Yeah. They, they tick up, and it's like you're reading through the chapters of the book. And then they literally, didn't they call them chapters? Yep, they did call them chapters. Yeah. That's correct. And then the art gives us this tapestries. Then they, they decide to mess with the frame of the card in a way that was just amazing to see spoiled. And, and one of my favorite current artworks, obviously, it's Bolas. But <laughs> but the Eldest Reborn is just amazing artwork. And it looks like a it looks like a tapestry that's telling this story to us. Yeah, my favorite of the sagas is probably the Marari conjecture, just because it looks like um, some wizard could have had like a eureka moment and then covered a blackboard in the art that's on Marari conjecture. I actually back around uh, GP Seattle, I got to have dinner with uh, James Arnold, who's the the artist who illustrated the Marari conjecture. And he was talking exactly about that, the, the, the desire to really have that kind of like blackboard look, that laboratory look, and saying that he was, you know, working with uh, Mark Winters, who was the AD on the set. And the thing, the kind of art direction that kept coming back was more chalk, more chalk, more chalk. And so he said, you know, I was in my, I was in my garage with pieces of chalk, just breaking chalk on a blackboard to try to see all the different ways that chalk looks when it breaks because you know if you're writing really fast and you're excited you break the piece of chalk but then you just pick it at the end up and keep going so you get that little kind of like chalk explosion midway through the writing where the chalk broke <laughs> and that, that was like the level of detail that went into trying to do reference for the, for that art that he was in his garage just breaking chalk over and over and over again to see the different ways that the chalk can look when you break it that's this is definitely a topic for another podcast but uh the Different ways that art styles were used to convey um, parts of uh, of the sagas. You know, we had um, I can't the remember. Stained glass. Yeah, the stained glass yeah. for history of Benalia. We yeah. had the first eruption. Yes. That it was a tapestry. I mean, you have all these beautiful different ways of of showing. You know, these different genres of art, and and it looks like different yeah. medium media for most of these, but it's yeah all. One you of know. them was, was painted, but it was painted to look like the thread of an actual woven mat. That yeah, was that was the first eruption. Yeah, that was that was Steve Belladin did that. Just incredible. Yeah, 
so I I love that too. You have those different ways of conveying story through you know through representations of of how we in our real lives convey story through art. That's that's super cool. To go to to the novel, you know, storytelling techniques. That's where you can take those little details, and you're telling the story through the texture of the art, not just the art itself telling a story. Because all the the art in all those sagas is telling a story. Look at Time of Ice. Mm-hmm. Every relevant person from this story of Ice Age is on it is on that art somewhere, but you also through through the texture of the medium, if it's woven cloth, if it's stained glass, it tells you about the culture that is still telling this story today. Absolutely, I feel like this is a good spot to ask you then, Morgan, to talk a little bit about how you we're kind of wrapping all of this back in on itself. We have the very literal way of of looking at cards as books in magic um and there's also kind of this meta stuff we're dealing with the lore and and all of that and you decided to take both of those two things and smush them together and make a books edh deck your new commander deck is is all about books so can you explain how how did you curate your library so i actually collect cards with books on them so this was kind of me taking that and distilling it down into a concept that I really enjoyed. And what I ended up doing, hitting upon, was uh, Hana Ship's Navigator, which is a card that's special to me because I got it for presenting at a judge conference, and uh, Therese Nielsen's art is just amazing, and uh, Hana has some books in her art, and her ability, which is pay three and tap her to return target artifact or enchantment card from your graveyard. with Mirari Conjecture and then also the Antiquities War, both being enchantments that go to your graveyard through the natural progression of their abilities seemed really cool to me. And so I picked out cards that either were artifacts, so I have the Jame Day Tome, I have the Urza's Tome, I have the new one, the Arcane Encyclopedia in there, as well as the people that use them, the wizards. Um, so I have a zombie lady of scrolls in there, as well as some other like Narumeha master wizard from um, Dominaria. It was just like surrounded by pages, and um, a Fedo alchemist, which I believe is a wizard, in spite of the uh, alchemy in the title, um, uh, has it's a creature from uh, Onslaught that has the ability tap it to untap target. Uh, creature or artifact so it all kind of works together in this wonderful way where I get to use these creatures to draw cards and I get to use these artifacts to draw cards and I don't really win the game but damn do I have a lot of cards <laughs> in my hand. Do, so you don't have like a legit win con is it just um, like it's all about drawing the antiquities war can be a win condition okay because its final chapter is turning all of my artifacts into five fives um I can also cause some of my opponents to lose with um, stuff like Walking Archive that makes everybody draw cards, or um, Jushi Apprentice, which flips into a creature, the legendary creature that makes an opponent uh, draw cards, e- or target player draw cards equal to the number of cards in my hand. So I can, I can really like oh. just magnify the amount of cards that everybody's drawing. Unfortunately. Uh, when I tried that strategy to win a game, I didn't kill somebody by making them draw a card, so they used all of the cards that they drew to kill yeah. them. Um, <laughs> you tried to flood them with knowledge, yeah, and they somehow... And, and like, they used that knowledge! <laughs> to kill you! <laughs> yeah. Awkward! Um, 
and but very hot in flavor. It, it, like, it was a lot of fun, and so that's like, I, I could put, for example, Laboratory Maniac into the deck. Um, Laboratory Maniac, when you if you would draw a card but have no cards in your library, you win the game. The thing is, Laboratory Maniac does not have any cards in the art mm-mm. or books in the art, so it really feels like I'm selling the book short. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you get like taking the focus away from them by adding non-book-related wiki additions to the deck. So no. you can use it to win the game, but at what cost? Yeah. Right, right, <laughs> right. Mm, that's deep. Now that's that's some snaps there. Yep. That's awesome. No, that's re- and that's really cool. It's it's a way for you of taking the, the part of the game that you identify with the most and putting it, like, curating, again, curating, but your game experience to, to be that. That's super cool. And and it, who cares if you win? You, you have all the knowledge. Like, that's the important thing. Also, <laughs> shout out to Legion Supplies for making the best sleeves ever for this deck. Um, I own an entire case of these sleeves. They are the black RTFC sleeves. And RTFC stands for Read the Freaking Card. <laughs> Let's pivot now. We, we've got the... We, we've talked a bit now about the game about the lore and about you know magic itself how do we this is always one of the focus of our shows is how do we take this stuff now and transfer it into our own lives into the real world so alex i think you had you had been talking about some of this stuff you know you've gone to conventions uh about writing and um you know books and literature specifically and um i mean how do, how do we take our knowledge of how books and, and literature matter in magic and and use it in the real world? Well, and I've, I've heard this described, and I'm pretty sure it was at the Fort Street Fantasy Convention, this convention I go to, but that ideals are like viruses. They, they can spread from person to person just by conversation, such as this podcast. And we can spread those things around, and it moves through population. And that is books and written, the written word is one of the first ways that humans were able to take that and not have to be face-to-face with somebody to share ideas. Now I can take this physical object, you can move it across distances, and then those ideas can travel with it. It was the OG social media, yeah. is what you're saying. And that's and I actually found several years ago just this fascinating article about how Martin Luther, the guy who started the Lutheran, uh, the Lutheran branch of Christianity, who some problematic stuff there but he was the first person to go viral yeah, yeah. um he with, because the, the printing press at the time was able to print all of these pamphlets and these little things and was able to share his ideas and spread his ideas about what the church was doing and what why this was wrong and why this is, might be closer to what the bible was saying but he was able to share his ideas with people yeah because that was that was gutenberg right johannes gutenberg yeah. the first printing yeah. press yeah. maven what's important about them for, especially in ancient times, is their longevity. I listened to a podcast called Hardcore History, and one series that of episodes was about the ancient Persian Empire. And the host of the podcast noted that the Persians are largely seen in history as the villains, but that's because their main they were the main antagonist of the Greeks, and the Greeks wrote everything down. Herodotus. <laughs> Um, just recorded a lot of things, and uh, it's possible that the things that Herodotus wrote down were meant to be orally delivered, but they were written down and we still have those. Whereas the Persians had a largely oral culture of 
like maintaining their history. So we ended up losing that. And so we now we know what we know, but we don't know what we don't know about the Persians because the, there are no books. There's no like long lasting record of what they thought about themselves. I feel both a Donald Rumsfeld quote coming on, the known unknowns, uh, and and there's also an element of that, of history being written by the victors, right? I mean, then the Greeks didn't win every battle, but in a sense, they won the, the knowledge war. They were the cultural victors. Right. It's relevant in terms of ancient history, but it's, it's even relevant in terms of today. Um, and the preservation of knowledge and, and the maintenance of that knowledge going forward, that you look at how much of what we do now exists in an entirely digital realm and obviously there are forms of archiving and there are efforts to archive some of that knowledge but it's going to be an open question you know 10 20 50 years from now how much of the the media that we're creating today in digital formats survives for posterity and th this conversation is propitious because i've been reading uh walter isaacson's biography of leonardo da vinci and of course, he also wrote the, the biography of Steve Jobs. And there's a, a comment in the book where he's talking about Leonardo's notebooks, um, which, you know, famously, you know, Leonardo da Vinci kept all these notebooks where he would do sketches and he would work on his inventions and he would write down things he observed and ideas that occurred to him and, you know, his mirror script. And the, the availability of these small notebooks was, was a tool that he took advantage of. Um, famously, he would always carry one with him wherever he was going. And the, the comment Isaacson makes in, in his biography is that we now have about 7,200 pages of Leonardo's notebooks which survive today, which is probably, as an estimate, maybe about a quarter of what Leonardo actually wrote during his life. But the comparison he makes is that that's a higher percentage of Leonardo's writing that still exists after 500 years than the percentage of Steve Jobs' emails and digital documents from the 1990s that they were able to uncover when writing the Steve Jobs biography. So there's that preservation of knowledge that comes from having it written down. I, I believe it was uh, Sumeria, like cuneiform was one of the first forms of writing that was discovered. And I, I think it was in Sumeria that they recorded a lot of like tax things and like how many cows were sold at the market, but they didn't record a lot of other cultural stuff, so we don't know a whole lot about them. We know how their economy works. Yeah, mm -hmm. but we have some very specific details about who was selling what and where. <laughs> That's an interesting idea of what knowledge is, what knowledge lasts, and the incomplete picture that creates of a people and a place at a time. And you know, going back and talking about the the spread of printing and. Going back to Leonardo da Vinci again for a second, he was alive right at the time that printing technology had started to spread, and it allowed da Vinci, who didn't speak Greek, didn't speak Latin, uh, there's actually pages, there's fascinating pages from his notebooks where you can see that he's trying to teach himself Latin, where he's copying down long lists of Latin verbs, and presumably he's not enjoying the exercise because in between the lists of verbs he draws uh, sketches of frowning faces. <laughs> Uh, which, which you know, there's no way to know, but historians have interpreted that as his sort of editorial comment on how much he didn't like having to try to learn Latin. And and had he, you know, lived 100 years earlier, that would have essentially made it impossible for him to consume 
most of the written material that, that might have interested him because it was written in Latin. But the spread of printing and the availability of cheaper printing materials like cheaper paper and the translation of that literature into the vernacular, vernacular Italian, gave him access to books that he never would have had previously. And so I'm, I'm going to read briefly here. His notebooks are filled with lists of books that he acquired and passages that he copied. In the late 1480s, he itemized the five books that he owned. Pliny, a Latin grammar book, a text on minerals and precious stones, an arithmetic text, and a humorous epic poem about the adventures of a knight and the giant he converted to Christianity, which was often performed at the Medici court. By 1492, Leonardo had close to 40 volumes. A testament to his universal interests, they included books on military machinery, agriculture, music, surgery, health, Aristotelian science, Arabian physics, palmistry, the lives of famous philosophers, as well as the poetry of Ovar, Ovid and Petrarch, the fables of Aesop, and some collections of bawdy dog rolls and burlesques, and a 14th century operetta from which he drew part of his bestiary. By 1504, he would be able to list 70 more books that he owned, including 40 works of science, close to 50 works of poetry and literature, 10 on art and architecture, 8 on religion, and 3 on math. And so again, like you see, that was the, that's the effect that the press had. That was what made that knowledge available. Books were expensive. Yes. Back before that. And they were also super nice. Uh, they were like bound up really well. Uh, not all of them. There's also, there's always like really cheap like pamphlet sort of like pulpy material books. And that's where we get the term pulp from. But yeah, the, the nice ones were like really nice, bound in leather and like beautiful and like covers and everything like that. Uh, and what I really like about this list is that is a representation of uh, like the knowledge of da Vinci, the information that he had access to, his library, his deck that he could draw from. And we don't necessarily get that today. We, we, I can't look at all the books I own and say, oh, I must know a lot about um, fairies. Uh, but because we have access to the internet, so all of our libraries are basically just like everything versus we have to specifically curate what we know or what we want to know. Yeah, and books are so easily available now. I have a lot of books that I have never read and some that just by the odds of the number that I buy versus the number that I read every year probably won't actually read. Well, what if Da Vinci's collection was all aspirational too? We don't actually know. Well, I think there's a reason, as someone observed, that we, we say that we're living in the information age. Nobody says that we're living in the knowledge age. <laughs> That's so good. I love it. I'm stealing that for college. I'm going to butcher exactly what this is. I'm sorry, so please correct me. But you both work in informational data organization. Can you talk a little bit, too, about, about how that digital, your, that digital element plays into our, our understanding of knowledge and, and knowledge categorization and preservation? I'm actually going to library school. Basically, I'm getting my master's in library science. Uh, and so if you want to keep track of that, follow me on Twitter. Um, we'll, see, we'll see if I'm actually alive after that. But um, yeah, one of the things about library science is the diversity of job opportunities, specifically requiring the person to have a master's in library science. For example, companies will use librarians to organize and sort out 
their data that they have collected on like a product or on surveys that they've collected from people um, because that itself is something that needs to be organized and librarians have the skills to do it and to like figure out what's important in that information. Digital curation is something that's really and I, I could talk about this from the other side because I work in in uh, software and game development. And I remember about, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago at this point where that was kind of, suddenly that was that was a buzzword that was on everybody's mind when we were working on projects. It's, you know, oh, data and metrics and, you know, user tracking. We need to make sure that we're building all these hooks into the programs, that we're collecting all this user data. We're making, we're, we're making sure that we have access to all this, but it's it's useless if there's no further effort made in terms of like, okay, you're, you're accumulating all this data. What are you actually going to do with it? What are you actually going to learn from it? How are you going to interpret it? What, what is it actually going to get you? And so again, it's, it's, it's that distinction between information and knowledge, if you will, <laughs> that, that there was this kind of shallow organizational level understanding that, well, we should really be collecting all of this information. And it's like, oh, Okay, so we collected it. Now what? <laughs> <laughs> sort of in the in the same vein as as what you're saying, this this collection, this over collection of data, kind of takes away the meaning of of the knowledge. I wonder today, are we with this digital age? You think about all the stuff that we put online, all the stuff that we have, you know, just of our daily lives encapsulated. Like you can, I can tweet out, and I'm sure I did tweet out numerous times, like having a sandwich or walking to the counter or this ability to capture everything in data now has led to almost an oversaturation of what we have. And, and I mean, does that, do you think that sort of is a, a, a something that we are going to regret in, you know, five, 10, 20, a hundred years down the road? Well, there are actually studies about this. Um, and one of the things I was really interested in uh, when I started applying for grad schools was information literacy, which is the ability to sort out what's important in information. So uh, one of the hot topics around information literacy at the time where I was like writing essays for grad school um, was fake news. Mm. And there are studies saying that people have less of an ability now to sort out what is fake news than they have in the past because there's just so much of it. The 24-hour news cycle went from being something that you joked about because of cable TV to being literally every minute of every day people are posting on Twitter and now you have like a 24-hour news cycle that isn't broken down into hours, it's broken down into minutes or seconds. There's so much of this stuff here that we don't know how to how to suss it out. Yeah, and human beings are trained, like our brains are designed to look for patterns too. So yes. even when, when we have so much data, we will find patterns that don't actually exist. <laughs> That's where a lot of conspiracy theories come from. <laughs> because where there's so much data available, we're just like, well, these things can't be a coincidence. Completely f missing how like statistics work and the fact that yes, they, there's coincidences happen all the time. Randomness is lumpy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, we, we're, we're pattern-seeking animals. It's, it's an evolutionary behavior, and I think it's just we, ha we have more places to look for patterns than we ever did before, and we're going to find them whether they exist or not. Sort of as a last note on this before we move on, the very tangible difference, the, the tactile difference of writing notes down versus typing notes on a laptop or on a computer, um, 
studies have shown that, you know, for students that the physical act of writing embeds notes deeper into your brain, you remember them better as opposed to typing, which sort of removes that tactile process of creating words. I mean, it's, it's now just digital. You're punching in keys. Um, I'm, I'm curious, we were talking a little bit off air before in doing prep, Morgan, you were saying that books are just more physical, tangible, effective way to convey information. Is that, is that similar to the note writing thing? Do you think that, I mean, given your druthers, not to again, not to sound like grumpy old people here, but like if you could have all the information you ever needed for grad school, just put in books, is that the way you would prefer to do it as opposed to internet? Yeah, and I'm definitely planning on taking notes in a physical form, and in order to use them more effectively, I might digitize them in order to like search them. But like writing things down is definitely the way that my brain connects to things. And when it comes to books, books are more tactile, not only because of the feel, but also because it's a five senses thing where some of the, like when I open a book, I'll remember the smell of the book that I read like, even if it's a different, completely different copy of the book, I'll remember the smell of the book when I got it from the bookstore for the first time. And I like, and stuff like that. And you can even kind of taste books. Um, <laughs> well, yes, <Lord>. yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, although it's not my habit to eat books, like, I definitely know books have a taste. <laughs> Um, because like you fall asleep on books and then you end up in your house and now like is that how it started, Orkish? <laughs> I I just I'm gonna just choose to accept Morgan's explanations at face value and not probe any deeper. <laughs> and and you also there's like a sound that you get when you turn the pages and when you like paper has a specific sound, whereas with a tablet or even with a Kindle, you're disengaging from that because the sound is always the same with a Kindle, like it's the one click. And with books, there's like variety and it's... It's rustling how you're holding the book even. Yeah. So not every page you're turning is going to sound the same. Yeah. Do you feel like you're the same way, Orc? Is it, you know, are you able to feel the same information gain or the same, um, you know, the same enjoyment i guess reading a uh, a kindle or a, a nook or one of those e-readers or is it you know is is that a different experience of, of taking a book for you I, i'm going to give you a terrible weasel answer and say kind of yes and no um I, I i definitely think that when i'm trying to read something where i really want to engage with it at kind of the lowest level that I can go and where I really want to retain not just the information that's in the text, but in the experience of reading the text, that there is something qualitatively different about having a printed book as opposed to having an ebook or an audio book or something like that. Um, but I, I love the fact that we live at a time where we have all these different formats available to us. And it doesn't have to be one or the other. We could mix and match. I mean, what, one of the realities of my life is I live in a, <laughs> a tiny little uh, apartment here in, in the middle of a city. And so we have very limited space, very limited physical space, very limited shelf space. And so what, you know, the books that we keep are kind of the, the books which are very significant to me. They're the ones that I know I've read before and I'm going to want to go back and read again that I always want to have access to. 
the the things which have personal meaning for me or things which I, you know, something in them touches something in me or it, it has an effect on my life. But I also love that, that I have a Kindle and I have Audible and I have um, digital subscriptions to newspapers and magazines and the ability to get access to all of that different media too uh, when I want it and I can consume it in different ways. I can read it on the train. I can listen to it. Um, when I'm walking to the office, you know, I can't read a book when I'm walking down the street without, uh, if you try to do that in Boston, your, your expected lifespan will probably be about 30 seconds tops. You're going to get murdered by, uh, one of our, our wonderful, uh, motorists, uh, but I can listen to a book, uh, audio book while I'm walking and we don't have to pick or choose. We, we have access to all those, those different media and different ways of consuming information, <laughs> To the point where I'm reminded that a friend uh, tweeted the other day a picture of himself holding a bunch of DVDs that he got from the library. <laughs> and his, his caption was, I love this new streaming service. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's, it's, it got me thinking that in a weird way, like libraries were kind of like the original streaming service. Like libraries were the original Netflix. <laughs> you know, you didn't have to own all this media. You had access to this media. You didn't have to pay for it. You could check it out and consume as much of it as you wanted, as quickly as you wanted. And then uh, it, was, it was just there. And that's weirdly, you know, the, the function that libraries still serve today. And so we have we live in an era where we have libraries and we have Netflix. And I, I like both of them. Well, we also live in an era too where, I mean, this is why I always get sad whenever we talk about like people, the, the fall of libraries or closing of them and, and not wanting to have these is that um, I know for a class reason, you know, a lot of the veterans that I've worked with that have either been lower income, homeless, it's their way to have access to this information because they can get on a computer. Mm -hmm. So um, I've had people that need to apply for jobs and they don't own a computer. I mean, that's just not something that they have, but the library is a place that they can apply for their job. They can do their resume. They can find out what's going on in the world. Um, they don't have a lot of money. They can still watch movies, you know, like something that we all enjoy doing. You might not be able to afford a streaming service, but you can afford a library card. It's even cheaper than Netflix. It's free. Unless you're really bad at returning library books. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anyone like that in this room. <laughs> I don't have a I don't have a clever transition no, this for this one. This is most excited for. Yeah, I I've been funny. shaking in anticipation of this all day <laughs> because I anytime I get a chance to design a game, I am so happy. So this is this is the game that we all of this was just prelude to bring you two on <laughs> to to play a game really I mean this is a game that we're gonna call Duel of the Librarians and so the way this is gonna work out is I'm gonna read a passage taken from the flavor text of an in-world magic book um, Oh no yeah <laughs> and is it an open book game? Uh, <laughs> the joke here is I have my library EVH deck. <laughs> Which there could be stuff from that. Yeah. I but like it. We don't know. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's, let's say too. Yeah, use your resources. <laughs> we can say yeah. that. Use your library card. I, um, I also like the book pun market. Yes, yes, yes I appreciate that was, it. That was the main oh, point of that. Yep, I appreciate that. We're just going to let it go. <laughs> We're talking on multiple levels, and I always enjoy that. Layers on <laughs> layers. Um, so the, each of you will take turns um, answering one of these, you know, one of these quotes. Um, you'll have to give me the name of the in-world book, and if oh, you no. can, <laughs> and if you can, bonus point for the set or story story cycle it first appeared in. If you don't get both, 
your opponent will have a chance to steal at least one of those points. Morgan won the die roll and has elected to go first. So, uh, this is our first quote. The eerie wailing hymn caused insanity even in hardened warriors. What is the name of that book? Um, is it the book from Words of Waste? It is not the book from Words of Waste. Uh, Orc, you have a chance to steal. The eerie wailing hymn caused insanity even in hardened warriors. Oh my goodness. Uh, the eerie wailing hymn caused insanity even in hardened warriors. It's not, it's not the Book of Rass, is it? It is not the Book of Rass. Good guess okay. on both. They were, yeah, they were good books. It is yeah. Sarpedian Empires, and I would have given it to you no matter which volume you guessed, but vo Sarpedian <laughs> Empires Volume 2 as uh, depicted on Him to Turok. Oh, okay. Okay, Orc, it's your turn. Okay. So your quote is, The strain upon the veil between worlds began to show near the end. Strange happenings that neither side could control lashed out across blank. It, this would reference... Uh, the world. The world. Uh, and this, this card is Ether Shockwave. Which does tap all spirits or tap all non-spirits. Is it, is it Tamio's journal? It is not Tamio's journal. Good guess. Morgan, you have a chance to steal. No, it's from Champions Block. That is a point. It is from block. Champions, yep. It is, yeah. Is it, a, is it a scroll of some sort? Ooh. It could be. Yeah, it could be. It could be. Um, oh, gosh. A scroll of... I think I own a scroll from Champions Block. <laughs> <laughs> uh, scroll of the Ages. Good guess. Uh, it is Observations of the Kami War. Oh, the cool. history of the uh, the Kami-human conflict. Yeah. Currently, after one <laughs> round, we have one point for Morgan and zero for Orc. Aww. Aww. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. I think I think Morgan may already have as many points as she needs. <laughs> uh, still doing it. <laughs> all right, Orc. So this one's for you. The clouds came alive and dove to the earth. Hooves flashed among the dark army who fled before the spectacle of fury. And this is on Pegasus Charger. So originally from uh, Urza's? Is that the, uh, is that the can't, uh, ooh, no, if it's from Urza's. Oh, is that, is that from one of the, the Saren hymns? Yes, so give it to you. Song of All, Canto 211. Wow, see, he, I'll, he's, so he's I'll like take it. Here. As soon nice. as you said Canto, that like, oh, yeah, hymn. it's going to be a song because it's from Urza's. Yep, yeah. it is the Saren the hymn, the song of all. Way to go. All right, Morgan. Selecting the proper beeble is the key to a good saute. The pinker the fur and the heartier the yelp, the more succulent the beeble will be when you pop it in your mouth. This is, on the card, saute. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, I don't know the rest of it. The, the, the we're gonna go, go with that. Yeah, we'll go. That's that's good for points. It's the Underworld Cookbook, the Asmoranomardicadestana Kaldukar. So our final score then uh, in the first duel of librarians, Morgan two, <laughs> now Orc know one. For. Now you guys know what your reading list is now for the next appearance. The word book in the scribe <laughs> Right. Literally what he did. Awesome. Well, we want to say a huge, huge thank you for both of you coming on. Morgan, why don't you let listeners know if there's anything you're working on right now or anything you want to plug? Okay. Um, I'm not working on anything right now except for preparing for grad school. <laughs> um, but I do want to plug 
uh, a charity magic group that um, started in my hometown of Rochester, Minnesota, that is working on branching out. It's called Weird Cards, and you can find them on Twitter at Weird Cards. I believe their website is weirdcards.org. And they are a uh, group that made, it's a magic-based nonprofit. They do charitable events that go towards things like the American Red Cross. Um, they do Girls on the Run, which is a really cool, like, program that's in Rochester. Um, they just donate to a bunch of different causes uh, from the proceeds from magic events, for example, releases. Yep, and they are actually at uh, GB Minneapolis right now, and uh, I think we're going to get Jason on the podcast sometime in the future. That's so, awesome. Yeah, awesome. Uh, Orc, what about you? Anything you want to plug? Uh, I'll just um, I'll plug my Twitter. I'm on Twitter, uh, at BiblioVorc. Uh, I look forward to people coming on my Twitter and uh, telling me how I should have gotten all those answers right. I really, Everybody should really lay into me. I also want to plug your the flavor added hashtag again. That's right. Yes, please go look at hashtag flavor added and see all the awesome work that Orc does. It's and make your own flavor added hashtag flavor added. I'm going to be following that hashtag flavor added. And uh, for for everybody out who's out there at the GP this weekend or at the the GPs in any future weekends, um, you know if you uh, enjoy having uh, people like cosplayers at your GPs, uh, let them know and uh, you know support them if you can. Well, thank you both again, and this was a blast. I had a lot of fun. Yeah. I had a lot of fun. I this, learned a lot. I, I mean, I, having guests is fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot less we have to do. <laughs> That's our show. Thank you all for listening. You can find the show at Goblin Lore Pod on Twitter. You can email any questions, comments, or concerns to us at goblinlorepodcast at gmail.com. Morgan Wentworth can be found at MTG Valkyrie. Bibliovore Orc can be found at Bibliovore Orc. Joe Redman can be found at Findhorn. Hobbs Q can be found at Hobbs Q. And Alex Newman can be found at Alexander Newem. Thank you all for listening, and remember... Goblins, like snowflakes, are only dangerous in numbers.